Welcome to the first episode of the Community Renewables podcast. My name is Rebecca Freitag and I'm here with energy transition chronicler Craig Morris. Today we will delve into the origins of community renewables. And I always thought before I met you, Craig, that the beginning of community renewables was actually the introduction of the Renewable Energy Sources Act in 2000. But now I, I know better and I will share my new insights with you today. Right. So the Renewable Energy Sources Act, uh, which is called EEG in German, so we'll be using that term in this podcast. The, the main insight that um, I've also uh, you know, reached over the past few years is that this law, the EEG, it did not bring about community energy, but the other way around. Community energy brought about the EEG. And we will delve into that in a later episode when we talk about sort of international um, community energy projects. Right. So my first insight here is that there's actually a predecessor to that EEG, and that is the Feed-In Act. And it's from 1991. So it was even before I was born. And that Feed-In Act um, got basically wind power started through the feed-in tariffs. So that means you have a fixed price. Uh, for your renewable energy generation, but actually it didn't get much more started. Today, I think it's going to, to be a history lesson because we will go back even further to understand the origin of community energy. And that is actually in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, Craig, can you tell us what Germany looked like in terms of energy sources back then? Well, I think the uh, people we interview are going to talk about things like a do-it-yourself uh, market. You know, that you couldn't just buy products uh, from local shops or whatever. You had to build your own wind farms, uh, your own wind turbines, essentially. And another thing that's interesting is that the church was very heavily involved. And I think um, that's going to surprise a lot of people. Um, and we have two interviewees uh, uh, from the church in this episode. Uh, and this is really crucial because a lot of people think, you know, renewables, it's green, so it must be leftist or whatever. But in Germany, the energy transition was always nonpartisan because it started off in rural communities among churchgoers. Um, and finally, we need to remember that the, uh, you know, in the 70s, there was the oil crisis, um, and so the focus was really on domestic energy production, and nuclear was just beginning to appear, right? So nuclear is a big player today, um, but it was really, uh, you know, it's established today. Back then, it wasn't established so much. It was just really promising. So the, the first big reactors were just being built in the 70s. Right. And as interview partners, you have picked two pioneers from that time. Those were pioneers because they believed in renewables, even though there was no law or no business model, no, well, let's call it renewable culture. The first pioneer is Heinrich Bartelt. He is the founder of the Inland Wind Power Interest Group. That was in 1985. And when I wanted to translate that word from German into English, uh, I first translated it with the word association. And then you were like, mm, no, let's use the word interest group here. Can you explain why? Well, they, they called themselves an interest group uh, because there wasn't anything to associate at the time. So the IWB, the Inland Wind Power Interest Group, 
um, is the predecessor organization to the current BWE, which is the Wind Power Association. But the BWE actually brings together all these market players, and they didn't exist back then, so there was you know nothing to associate. You just had people interested in getting something going. Hmm. And Heinrich Battelt will also mention avoided cost. And when he mentioned that, I was thinking about the environmental external costs that are not included in the price for fossil fuels. Um, so, for example, the costs for climate change or pollution that we all as society have to bear. But in fact, that's not it. Right. So avoided cost essentially is the, uh, you know, from the perspective of the power company, It is the fuel that they don't need to burn if uh, wind power is coming online. Um, and so when they talk about like the, the cost that wind power avoids for these power, other power plants, uh, we're just talking about you know, fuel cost essentially there. And there's one other thing that he mentions that might, you know, we might need to explain beforehand, and that's the fact that he talks about the first grid-connected um, wind turbine. And, uh, you know, today all of our wind turbines pretty much are connected to the grid. Uh, back then they weren't. So uh, people would set up their own wind turbines on their property. These were smaller, obviously, you know, in their backyards, on their farms. But they didn't connect them to the grid because it, well, on the one hand, it wasn't all necessarily legal or not clearly legal. And on the other hand, there was actually a debate about whether wind turbines could be connected to the grid at all or whether they might destabilize uh, the grid frequency and things like that. It's a technical discussion. We don't need to get into it deeper, but uh, that's an important point to note here. There were some wind turbines up. So when Bato talks about the first grid-connected turbine, uh, that's the important aspect there. He will talk about a poster of a twin of the twin wind turbine. Let me quickly tell you that story because I found it really exciting. Um, so Twint is actually a small Danish town. It was 1975. We had the oil crisis and there was a school and those teachers of that school, they wanted to demonstrate that there is an alternative to nuclear. And then they actually built their own wind turbine And um, that was, well, they did it with 400 local volunteers. There were teachers, there were students. It took them three years and they used secondhand components. And I mean, just imagine it was just a school. It wasn't, it wasn't a university or the government or something. And then in the end, there was a wind turbine that was 55 meters high. Um, I mean, today we have about 260 meters high wind turbines, but... Um, that wind turbine had a capacity of one megawatt, and that was actually Europe's largest wind power plant until the 90s. And here's the most surprising fact. Um, it's still running. It's 42 years old now. Well, but here I stop and I will give the floor to maybe the second biggest twin wind turbine fan, Heinrich Bartelt. Okay, who's the first biggest? Who's the biggest of all? Is that you? <laughs> Maybe it's me now. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Tell us about the IWB, this predecessor organization of the current German Wind Energy Association, BWE. The abbreviation stood for Interest Group Inland Wind Energy. We started off in 1985 with about 30 friends of wind power in northwest Germany. 
This is where the first wind turbine was connected to the grid in 1982. The unit provided electricity to a household and excess electricity was exported to the grid. The wind turbine provided about six times more electricity than the family needed. So the rest was provided to the public via the grid. And that's also where the trouble started. There was no fair compensation for the electricity sold to the grid. That's why the IWB was founded, to fight for fair compensation. What kind of compensation did you get? I mean, there weren't any laws about all this at all at the time. Exactly. There were no laws, just voluntary agreements. If I remember correctly, we paid around the equivalent of 9 cents for the retail rate. And the power companies were offering us one cent at night and two cents during the day for the electricity we exported. For this pollution-free electricity. Okay, just to make sure I understand you correctly, you were paying nine cents and the power firms were offering you one to two cents? So is this, ganz genau. That's right, yeah. I think the technical term for this is avoided costs. So the power company argued that they were only willing to compensate you for whatever costs your electricity helped them avoid, which was essentially their fuel costs. Right, the allegedly avoided costs. But we argued at the time that these costs were much higher. We said the full retail rate should be paid. In other words, the power meter should simply run backwards and forwards. Our reasoning was that the cost of fuel was not the only thing avoided. The wind power also didn't cause any pollution, so these impacts were also avoided. And this argument was quite palpable in in this particular case. The wind turbine was close to a coal plant that regularly spewed pollution into the air, and everyone could see that the wind turbine didn't give off any smoke. There was no pollution from it. How did you come up with this idea in the first place? Were you able to buy a wind turbine on the market, or did you have to build the things from scratch yourself? Back in the 1970s, when I was a student, I read something about a giant wind turbine that had been built at a school in Denmark, at the Twint High School. Parents, pupils, and teachers had built a one megawatt wind turbine, and it worked. I had hung up a poster of this wind turbine on my wall in 1977, so I looked at it all the time. And two years later, I decided to try to build a smaller one with some of my friends. So let me get this straight. Other young men had posters of football players and sexy women on their walls, and you had a poster of a wind turbine. <laughs> so it's just, you know. <laughs> okay. 
So you started installing your own wind turbines. In 1985, the Friends of Wind Power, the IWB, started their work. We were thinking about what at the time was called alternative energy, wind power, solar, biomass and hydropower. And then the Chernobyl accident happened in 1986. A lot of people joined our efforts then, saying that we need to look for alternative energy sources. By 1988, we were able to set up the first wind turbine on my parents' farm, with a capacity of 50 kilowatts. That's about the size of a small car's engine? Yeah, that's about as big as the engine of a Volkswagen Beetle at the time. And in the same year, 1988, I also founded my first wind power company, which still keeps me busy today. I started off as a reseller of Dutch wind turbines. Did you have any trouble getting permits? When my brother and I built the turbine on my parents' farm, the official who was in charge of giving us a construction permit turned out to be very open-minded. We asked him about what minimum distance we should have between the turbine and the next building. And he just laughed and said, make sure the fire department can get through and everything should be fine. How did the power company respond? We had been negotiating with the power company about all kinds of requirements for grid connection, and they were basically just playing for time. So when we got the construction permit, we decided to simply go ahead and build, without the power company's consent. Somehow, they got wind of the whole thing, and on the day the construction crane arrived, Two representatives of the company also showed up. They were pretty upset and told us that we were not allowed to continue. We told them that we had the construction permit, but they said we could not connect to the grid because the requirements had not been finalized. So my mother stepped in between and said, Gentlemen, why doesn't everyone come into the kitchen and discuss this properly? When we are all sitting at the kitchen table, she took out a bottle of schnapps, as people do in our region, and gave us all something to drink. One drink led to another, and when the discussion ended about two hours later, everyone was in a really good mood, and the wind turbine was good to go. And then the Feed-In Act of 1991 came. How did that change things for you? It did two things. First, it set a minimum level of compensation for the electricity we exported to the grid. And second, it created a requirement for the power grid operator to buy the electricity. So we knew in advance how much money we could expect to get from the electricity we generated. And banks were now also able to make calculations in advance when we applied for loans. This is what we meant when we say that wind power became bankable. And it led to stable growth throughout the 1990s. Okay, is there anything you'd like to add 
Any answers you'd like to give to questions I didn't ask? I think renewables address more than just energy issues, but also democracy itself by democratizing the energy sector, especially in rural areas. Economic growth is increasingly taking place mainly in cities. We need to make sure there are long-term economic opportunities in rural areas as well, especially in eastern Germany. Renewables, solar, wind and biomass, are a great opportunity in this respect, but only if we make sure that enough of the revenue flows back into these communities. Investments need to be made, not only in local jobs, but also in social and cultural activities. I think we need to keep an eye on that in our policymaking. But me and you are pretty old school in that respect. I don't see a lot of other people talking about it these days. And the Fridays for Future generation seems to be only focusing on the climate. Few people are talking about the impact of market concentration on democracy, especially young people. I think you might be asking too much of people who are 15 or maybe 18. Think about what we were interested in and understood when we were that age. I think it's really impressive that people of that age are dealing with climate issues at all. Think about how they're coming together with parents for future, with scientists for future, with engineers for future. And as they continue to learn about science and talk about these issues, their understanding will grow. They will eventually come to realize that climate technologies also have an effect on peacekeeping and on democracy. I'm not worried at all. They will touch up on these issues in the next few years. The important thing is that they are conscious and want to take responsibility for our common environment and for our common planet. That's a major success for me, and very encouraging. You're right. Um, after all, Lots of young people at that age had posters of athletes and sexy celebrities on their walls. <laughs> so Heinrich basically explained the Feed and Act that I was mentioning before that was um, introduced in 1991. It did two things. First, it set a price for renewable electricity. And then secondly, it guaranteed the grid connection. But what about that Schnapps story that he was telling us? I mean, what kind of world is that where we resolve problems, especially business problems with Schnapps? Is that, I don't know if I want to live in that kind of world. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, you can see it two ways in a way. I mean, a part of me kind of feels like um, I wish we you know, could just sit down. And it doesn't have to be schnapps, of course, but I, I would like to be able to just sit down with people and resolve things, uh, you know, over over um, a coffee and cake or whatever. And I think probably that, you know, people who see eye to eye and are equals, right? So neighbors and stuff like that, maybe you can do that better that way. 
but you're right. I mean, I kind of have a hard time imagining business people sitting down today from, you know, different companies or in this case, it was also, you know, David and Goliath in a way. Um, and, and, you know, people sitting down these days taking care of this over a beer or a schnapps or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it happens, but it's, it's, it seems unusual. Maybe it was uh, something that was more common back then. Well, today we have that law and that that's fine with me. <laughs> I found interesting what he was saying about the side effects of renewables, that it will bring about peace, it will bring about democratization, and also pointing out the difference of, um, well, the effect in East and West Germany. And I wasn't thinking about that aspect before, but I found like, yeah, I think it's it really makes a difference what kind of cultural background you have and... It reminded me of a story that a friend told me. She worked for a, a wind developer company. And um, she always said that when she had a project in East Germany, people were hostile, they were resistant. They were like, oh, now that um, company is going to profit off of us. But when she was in the West, it was different. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's her experience. I can't really comment on that. I mean, the one thing that I've noticed about the difference between East and West Germany, and of course, I think most people remember East Germany was the communist state. So they sort of come into this uh, energy transition, uh, I guess, with less money, right? And one of the things that, you know, where this kind of makes a difference in community energy is, of course, If people, citizens, are going to become involved, they need some liquidity. You know, you, get, you need like 5,000 euros to invest. And, you know, so this is relevant for, I think, all EU countries because every EU country is going to have, especially rural areas where the stuff gets built, you're going to have communities where the people just lack the money. And so maybe there is a difference there. Maybe the maybe what your friend is is sort of experiencing is that... These are, you know, out-of-town developers coming in, and the people kind of feel like, okay, who's this company? We don't know them, um, you know. And um, maybe there was also a difference with what Heinrich did. So the funny thing is, I actually visited a big project of his in Dadesheim, and I met the guy, uh, Heinrich doesn't live there, but I met the guy who does, and he, like, runs the daily business there. And it's only about 10 kilometers from the old border between East and West Germany. And there's a funny story. So, so Heinrich went in and really tried to, you know, get the community involved in his project. But there was also a spirit, you know, there before that. The East German guy who's, um, you know, running the project locally, he basically uh, stood on a hill one day and looked across the border in the mid-80s. And somebody in West Germany, had built their own wind turbine. And he looked over there and saw that and thought, wait a minute, we can do that too. So there was a local spirit, right, that, that Heinrich was able, able to tap into uh, with his project. Um, but otherwise, I would say, if you're interested in knowing more about how we can sort of get community benefits in areas where maybe the people lack the money to invest themselves, Take a look at the Scottish model. Uh, take a look at what Scotland is doing with community energy. We're not going to go into it uh, much in this podcast, but you can look it up online. Uh, there are some pretty interesting approaches there. All right, I will do that. Um, 
we were already talking about the name and I'm sorry we have to get back to that but I have another question about the name of the inland wind power interest group why is it inland and why isn't it just onshore it's called inland because most of the turbines were built along the coast right so they were on land and that's because you know they were along the coast because that's where the wind is and What Heinrich was arguing and his friends of wind energy, I hope you caught that term, friends of wind energy, uh, what they were uh, trying to say was, we want to build turbines everywhere, even away from the coast where the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so we're going to need different compensation, right? And so that's kind of what they were focusing on from the very beginning. And uh, we end up with that in German laws later, where they say we're going to offer a certain price, like a base price for, you know, the best sites with the best wind conditions. And then we'll add a little bonus uh, so that it gets built, you know, further inland, uh, because we do want to have wind turbines, not just along the coast, you know, everything gets cluttered up there, but spread it across the country and also allow more people to become involved. And so he was tapping into this from the very beginning. All right. And he wasn't alone. He had um, somebody whom we're going to interview next. Uh, it's Josef Pesch. He is also from that interest group for Inland Wind Power. And he also was somebody who started wind energy very early in 1983 in southwest Germany. And uh, in the interview, he will talk about his own renewable energy cooperative that is called Fesageno. Josef Pesch will make a very interesting connection between football and solar. And then this is about the stadium that you wanted to visit initially, Craig. Yeah, exactly. So in the interview, Josef Pesch mentions Rolf Disch. Rolf Disch is also a pioneer a solar, in solar architecture. And there are two points. Um, the first one is that he was designing a solar-powered automobile and he even raced it himself in the World Solar Challenge in Australia. And secondly, he built the heliotrope that is in Freiburg today. It's a house that physically rotates with the sun to maximize the sunlight. And that building is actually the first building worldwide to have a positive energy balance. Um, that means it generates more energy than it consumes. And here we go. Here's the interview with Josef Pesch. I actually just talked with um, Heinrich Bartelt. Aha, uh -huh, okay. He will be the um, interview just before yours. Uh -huh. and, and he said a funny thing. He had a poster on his wall of the Twind wind turbine did you also have a wind turbine on your wall as a 20 year old or a teenager <laughs> not as a teenager definitely not because that was not on i started in in 1983 84 uh, when i was a student at münster university so I mean, we had two professors in münster one of them who was very theoretical bach who worked with uh, the professor of al gore in, ha in hawaii uh, Wait, did you say the professor of al gore in hawaii Yeah, the guy, uh, um, uh, th th they both did research at the same time in Hawaii. Okay. Uh, Al Gore reported about that in his uh, uh, nice video. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but that was very, very theoretical, uh, very, very abstract num numerical models and all that. Right. Uh, so I, I just sat in one lecture and then said, okay, not my, not my kettle of fish. Okay. Uh, Yes, and Heinrich was one of the founder members, and Dietrich Koch, of course, was. Uh, he had a small 30, 30K uh, Lagerweih, 
uh, today we would call it small. At the time, we thought this was uh, fantastically big. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this was perhaps one of the first wind turbines uh, away from the coast. You're in southwest Germany now. You're mainly focusing on solar, regardless of where you work. So why that transition from wind to solar? When I started with FESA, uh, and that was FESA Association in 1998, uh, of course, the new legislation had just been passed. And most of the work I did for the first 10 years was wind, because we co-financed basically all the wind projects in Black Forest at the time and some others beyond that. Okay. Uh, FESA itself was founded in, in 1995. FESA had been active before in solar, and the first big FESA project, of course, was the stadium roof of SC Freiburg, uh, the first stadium in, in Germany that mm. had a, a solar roof. Uh, right. And, and that, that was uh, 1995. Yeah, so um, here, I remember reading about this, right? So I'm sitting in Freiburg. Um, I was teaching English in at the university at the time, had nothing to do with renewables. So, so I'm reading about this, and... It blew my mind because I'm thinking, wait a minute, the, the soccer team, right, the football team is pushing solar at a time when solar was something for NASA, for outer space. Yeah. Like who was built? This it was. I mean, we talk about how expensive it was in 2009 when Germany built a lot of it, but this was 14 years before that. So yeah. it, it was way more expensive. Who was behind this and and how did you get like a football team to support this idea? Uh, I think it was the, the, the great charm and persuasion of uh, um, Rolf Disch, who talked to uh, lots of people and would also talk to the construction manager uh, who were building the new southern wing of the stadium. First of all, uh, because he was an architect, he could uh, talk to these guys and basically pointed out, okay, if you uh, just raise the, the load that the roof can carry just a little, we can put solar on. And in the end, it costs something like uh, 2,000 euro to to uh, to make these changes. So uh, for a, for a volume of uh, I don't know uh, a couple of hundred thousand, I should think uh, this is not really a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, he talked to uh, Volker Finke at the time, who was the trainer, mm -hmm. uh, the um, coach of the SC team. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he talked to the mayor of Freiburg. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Freiburg, uh, the city of Freiburg, was then the owner of the stadium. Mm -hmm. uh, remember, this was young. Uh, this was uh, Freiburg had just managed to get into the first uh, into the Premier Division. The deal, I think, was it doesn't cost the city of Freiburg anything. It doesn't cost uh, SC Freiburg uh, anything, but they will support it. And we would do a citizens' participation project. That is, we would collect money from people. And one of the things that uh, that SC Freiburg threw in was uh, two season tickets that were raffled among those who were who were participating in financing the uh, the solar stadium. And for some of the people who put money into this, this was the, the most attractive thing about the whole thing at all. Okay. Because at the beginning it was quite clear right. uh, um, they would probably get their money back. Uh, but they would not uh, make any interest. But let me get this straight. Let me get this straight here in my mind. So you've got, uh, I don't know, how many people invested? There it was uh, something like uh, um, 300, I think. Okay. And, and so you've got 300 people investing. Almost all of them are not going to get their money back, 
right? Well, they would get their money back, but not more. They wouldn't get any any interest on that money. Okay, but how are they going to break even on this solar? How were you getting? So you're generating solar power and selling it to the grid. I mean, there was there was the the Einspeisungsgesetz, right? Yeah, there was there was the the Einspeisungsgesetz of 1990. Of course, that was the big big revolution. And that's how you were making money. Then you were getting 90 percent of the retail rate. Okay, and 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 still that was enough to break even because I mean solar, 15 years later or 10 years later at least still costs like 60 cents. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Uh, um, whether we would break even or not is of course a huge big question. Uh, I've not seen the calculations on that. Uh, this was before my time. Uh, and okay. uh, also uh, the contracts were really bizarre contracts because at the time no one knew how to do contracts like that. How, uh, do, you, how do you do a citizen's participation contracts? No one okay. had a clue at the time. And okay. so uh, this is the whole uh, the whole scheme is quite bizarre uh, if you look mm-hmm. at it from from today's perspective. But at the time, yeah. this was pioneering work. Right. And this is the kind of thing that so I was really excited. I didn't invest, incidentally, at the time. Um, Neither did I. I had just started working. I was in my, like my second year of work, and I was still paying off uh, my student yeah. debt from the United States. So I, I just didn't feel like I had the money. But what really inspired me and it hasn't you know i still have this inspiration today it seems like you have a certain number of people in the the population who are willing to do the right thing regardless of whether it is profitable or not that's what inspired me about this project and this and it seems and this stems largely from uh, i think the protest against the nuclear power station at veal which is just about 25 kilometers from freiburg but my question to you really is i mean everything has really switched to there has to be a business case since then i mean that's kind of what made the eeg magical in 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 2000 right is that it gave us business cases and so I, I mean, I guess there's like a, a 1% or maybe 0. Point something percent of the population that is willing to do the right thing without uh, having the right price. But I don't know, maybe it's 50%, and maybe we just need to change the discussion. Do you still see some of that spirit in, in your work? Are people still willing to say, you know what, uh, take my money, uh, run with it, do the right thing? Well, yes, yes, and no. We've always seen this. There are uh, people invested in renewable projects uh, and always have uh, not really looking at uh, the perfect uh, rate of interest or rate of return, uh, because very often in the markets or even in banks, uh, you could get better re- uh, returns than than we could offer. And we are seeing this, of course, now as well. We have people who say, okay. Uh, there is money lying around. Uh, I want to invest this. I don't want to invest this into into banks. I don't want to go into the stock market, uh, but I right. want to do something that uh, that helps. And we have seen this in Fesageno recently because we said, okay, look, if we are going on an expansion course, that is, if we are really doing volume in solar or wind, mm-hmm. we will not be able to pay huge dividend. Uh, we can't mm-hmm. have both. Uh, if we're putting money into expanding, we cannot uh, pay that out. And right. uh, the consensus in that group was, okay, uh, we'll accept that uh, even if we have no dividend at all for two years or three years, uh, that's fine. Uh, you just go ahead and do it. Uh, uh, fortunately, we managed to get to pay the dividend after all. Uh, but um, uh, yes, that spirit is still there. It's it's very very clearly visible that people want to move this thing, 
it doesn't have to be the top rate of return, uh, but it mm-hmm. should be uh, it should be profitable. Otherwise, uh, you right. can't do it because uh, let's face it, we're competing with the big big four in Germany. Yeah. And uh, if we're competing, if we are to compete with them and we're not making profit, uh, we won't make it. So I, I want to say something. I, I tried to say this actually in the interview, but I mean, really, these people did not get their money back. I mean, just do the simple math. Five years later, Germany... Uh, passed a law that basically paid four times as much for solar electricity, okay? So these people were getting a fourth of what solar cost five years afterwards. So this was really just a group of people who were working off of donations. I mean, you know, they were just willing to donate the money. Uh, They got a little bit of it back, but there's no way they, they broke even. There was no business model at the time. Yeah, and I mean, that just proves your point that you were making in the previous episode that values are more important. But then I'm looking at that and think like, well, both were lobbying for having a business model and also both profited from these uh, laws, from the Feed-In Act and from the EEG, and only these laws actually helped to scale up renewables. Yeah, I mean, obviously, values are important, but I mean, there's like 1%, 5% maybe of the population that's willing to make donations like this. So obviously, if you want to scale this up, you need a business model. Let's get back to the protest. And for that, we will have an expert that I haven't expected at all in this podcast, a podcast on renewables. It's a theologian. His name is Johann Meyer, and he wrote his master thesis on the erosion of the promise of progress. This all takes place in Wiel, and I was like, I mean, I am from Germany, and I was like, where the hell is Wiel? I checked it up, and it's a small town in the south of Germany. It's close to the French border. It has less than 4,000 inhabitants, so, you know, really small, but actually really important for the energy history of Germany. Um, I would even call it maybe the place of birth of renewable energy spirit. So in um, the 1970s, we had the oil crisis and the apparent alternative seemed to be nuclear. And they planned to have several reactors, not just one, but several in that area, which which would make it a very concentrated uh, nuclear power plant area. Yeah. Can I add something there? Sure. Um, so it wasn't just in Germany. I mean, it, the same concentration plans were actually taking place uh, on, along the Rhine uh, in France and also in Switzerland. And so we forget about this today. We think, uh, you know, the Germans protested against one nuclear reactor in the 70s or whatever in, in, in Wiel, and that's how this got started. But actually, it started that way, but people soon realized, oh, there's plans to build dozens of uh, reactors in these three countries, uh, you know, within this very small area. And it would have been the largest concentration of nuclear reactors worldwide. So Maya will talk about the role of church. And this is why he will also talk about Father Günther Richter. He was the priest during that time. He will mention Breisach, that is the nearby town and the region, which is called Kaiserstuhl. He will also refer to the Ruhr area. That is a very heavy industrialized area in Germany. 
And yeah, I think that's all we need to know to tune in into Johann Mayer. Why were people protesting back then? My master's thesis basically says that the Protestant church, very early on, voiced its opposition to nuclear power, thereby strengthening the protest movement. The period around 1989 is considered a time of change, specifically with the fall of the wall. But historians actually see the 1970s as a period of greater change because people's values shifted, specifically from materialism to post-materialism. New social movements also came about, and the anti-nuclear movement was a part of that. People began taking to the streets and fighting for this new system of values. You can even contextualize this shift in values. In the case of nuclear power, people became more aware of the risks it entailed, and they wanted to take action against it. And the main contention in my master's thesis is that the Protestant Church, at least in the German state of Baden, supported people in these efforts. And that support allowed these protests to grow stronger. You also clearly document that at some point the focus was on radioactivity, but that's not how it started. What were people worried about in the very beginning? In the very beginning, the reactor was supposed to be built in Breisach, not in Wien. And there, wine growers and farmers were concerned about the microclimate. They were worried that their harvests might be affected. And so, the state government of Baden-Württemberg decided to move the location to Wien, which itself was more a town of workers than farmers. They hoped to meet with less resistance there after 65,000 signatures had been collected in Breisach against the reactor plants. But the focus of the protests gradually shifted from the microclimate to radioactivity. And I would argue that the church once again played a role here, because it made its facilities available to protesters in surrounding communities. In doing so, they provided the protesters with a platform and also gave a voice to the local people affected, who were struggling to get themselves heard in the debate with proponents of nuclear. Your book also includes a number of maps showing how many nuclear reactors would eventually be built in the area. And as you describe it, the concern here was also not about radioactivity primarily. What was it about? 
The locals did not want to have another rural area, a giant industrial zone where they lived, which is actually kind of surprising because nuclear power was portrayed as being clean. The plan was not to fill up the area with coal plants that would emit a lot of pollution, but rather with clean nuclear power. And that's what I mean by this promise of progress. Especially in the 1950s and 60s, people were told that nuclear power would make society better, that energy demand was rising, and that nuclear was the only way to meet that demand. Nobody talked about the long-term costs, especially for nuclear waste disposal. All of that was typical for this promise of progress, even to the 1970s. We can solve everything with technology. We can make a better society with technology. And in the 70s, the first cracks in that portrayal started appearing. People began to realize that there were serious concerns about nuclear power. And they began to question the notion of unlimited economic growth. We began to understand that technology cannot solve everything, and that each technology causes its own new problems. So doubt was increasingly cast on this promise of progress that had previously been unquestioned. The concerns about local pollution didn't only pertain to the nuclear reactor itself, but also to the industry that would be built up locally. For instance, the first big industrial plant expected to be built would have produced lead just across the Rhine from the reactor in France. Exactly. In fact, you can even argue that the German protesters against nuclear adopted the tactics practiced in France. Indeed, the French protesters were themselves surprised that they were able to block construction of that plant. In both cases, we are talking about rural, conservative communities that were not used to protesting, not used to setting up barricades and doing illegal things. But in light of this history, isn't it problematic to do what Fridays for Future is saying we need to do? Listen to the scientists? Yes, it's almost as though we're experiencing a revival of this old, unquestioning faith in science and technology. Like we're being told that scientists will tell us what we need to do, and our job is to simply follow their instructions faithfully without need for any political debate. It's a really technocratic way of viewing the world. The experts should rule over us, and we will be their subjects. And that call for experts to rule the world also seems to assume that these experts always agree. 99.9% of climate scientists agree what the problem is, but there is no agreement about the solution. Right. And of course you can study what the impact of specific steps would be if undertaken. You can model the effects on climate change. But we should also look into what kind of image of society is assumed. What do we want to tell people they can and cannot do? What kind of freedoms do we want people to keep? 
Natural sciences are not going to help us in such discussions about values. Nonetheless, I feel like I can read a little bit of tension into your work. Is the church supposed to be an active player in this world or stand above it all? If I take this from the one absolute extreme and we say that the church is only about getting into heaven and otherwise does not tell us how we should act here on earth in particular cases, then faith is dead. If it has no consequences for our actions, then what's the point? So there's obviously some role for the church in current discussions, and that role is to make some voices heard. On the other hand, we see that church leadership is often very cautious in these respects. In fact, we even saw that in Wiel, church leaders, bishops and others, did less than the pastors on the ground in local churches. Okay, so this is Craig from the studio again. Um, I wanted to interrupt uh, the interview to give you an idea of what Johann Maya is talking about. And so I'm going to play a quick clip from 2013. In it, Father Gunther Richter, so the local pastor who fought for his congregation against the upper church and political leadership, is on a stage receiving an award for his actions 40 years prior. The sound quality is really bad. I just recorded this from the audience back then. But you get a sense from his words how much of an activist this pastor had become. So here it is. I was concerned about how people who call this place home were being treated. We faced an arrogant economic and political force that was more interested in profits than in people's needs. And the only way to respond was the way we did, by saying, we said no. Exactly. That's what people were criticizing him for, trying to take the gospel and say that it told us specifically what we should do for a single political policy. Father Richter was seen by his critics as saying that a good Christian should be critical of nuclear power. His critics were saying that the church needs to continue to bring people together, not take sides with a particular camp. We can even describe what happened in Wiel as a kind of emancipation from higher church leadership, which continued to bring people together as an integrator. Local people reacted by coming up with their own forms of religious activity, so to speak. That's an interesting point that churches are actually places for political debates. And I know these stories only from my parents. When they were young, they lived in Berlin and they told me about um, how a church was actually a place for discussion and where people got organized and exchanged ideas 
during the time when the Berlin Wall came down. I mean, the church was the place for, for starting the Monday demonstrations. And when I think about my, my generation, this kind of influence of the church is unthinkable. So the disappearance of the church, does that also mean that we don't have a place to discuss values anymore? I mean, Craig, you say we never meet anymore to talk about ethics, but is that really true? Like, I don't think so. Where do you think it's taking place? Well, I think it has shifted online, obviously. So we see a lot of political and maybe also yeah, value discussions online. Also, what I currently see is that we see a lot of new books being published on how should our world look like and so on. I mean, it's just a small trend, but I do see that happening. And also in the business area that a lot of businesses try to find uh, the purpose of their business and their values. And you get the question, what is your why in your life? So I see that this is debate is, I don't know, maybe it's just a trend, but I see that this is starting right now. Um, you also say we need to go to church on Sunday for climate. Um, but then you also say that this church doesn't have to be the church in that sense. So what kind of place do you want? You know, there may be some people listening to this podcast thinking, I don't want the church to lead, right? And what I would do is look back to something like... Uh, uh, Agenda 21. This comes out of the UN debate. It comes out of uh, the Rio Climate Summit in 1992. And if you go back and ask a lot of these uh, citizen uh, energy groups that we'll be talking to, you know, how did you get started? A lot of them, and FASA was actually in, in Freiburg with the football stadium. It was one example. Uh, these Agenda 21 groups, you know, it trickled down from the UN to the local level. And people just began to meet and say, what can we do locally? And I don't know if this happened in every country, but in Germany, because of these new laws, because specifically of the law, the Feed-In Act that had been passed in 91, these Agenda 21 groups were then able to say, okay, we can legally start making our own renewable energy right now. So there was this confluence of events in Germany. And so I guess I'm looking for something like that for today, you know, like Agenda 2030 or something, but to really have these local groups coming together and discussing what action they can take. I was the UN Youth Delegate on Sustainable Development, so I was working on the Agenda 2030, and I was always wondering in the international negotiations, like, does that really matter on the local level? Does that even arrive there? And now that you're saying Agenda 21 had big impact, um, it's really also encouraging to see. Oh, yeah. Agenda 21 was huge for people in the early 90s. I see kind of parallel to interest groups that we were talking about before with uh, the other pioneers. The church takes the role of an interest group of citizens here in this story. Right. We, so we have, uh, you know, uh, the, the wind energy interest group, but here we have, I don't know, the, the church as an interest group for its congregation. Now, there's one thing I'd like to actually criticize a little bit about Johann's, uh, you know, depiction of things. Um, I asked him about industrialization, and he says, you know, it's kind of ironic because the nuclear power wouldn't have polluted the air. But he later also mentions that there was a lead plant coming to town, 
And that's the part of industrialization that people were upset about. Let me just repeat this. A lead production plant, you know, lead that was banned a a few years later in gasoline. You know, we used to have leaded gasoline. Uh, It was taken out of paints and things like that. So this plant was blocked, and I'm sure the company that runs it, you know, by the time it would have been finished, the product was pretty much going to be banned. But you have to really get your head around that, right? I mean, these farmers, when they thought about industrialization coming to town, they were thinking uh, they're going to be creating tons and tons of toxic material. You both said something like, okay, this is kind of naive to just listen to the scientists, Um, but now we have corona pandemic and We are listening to the scientists. But I would say it's actually a good example of what I mean by understanding the difference between the the problem and the solution. The virologists are saying, you know, things like wearing masks would help a little bit um, in particular ways. It doesn't hurt to wear them, so we're good to go. But the best virologists, when it comes to, you know, more complex questions like, When is it time to open up the economy? Uh, In what order do we open up which business type? What price are we willing to pay in terms of deaths versus economic losses? And the best virologists kind of try to back out of that discussion. And and some of them very openly say, look, I do virology. You need to ask the politicians about that. You know, or we need to come to a uh, an agreement as a society. It has to be a group decision. When it comes to the problem, we have to listen to the scientists. But when it comes to the solutions, um, whole society has to work on that. Johan is also talking on how the promise of progress through technology has been like a dominant dogma during the 70s. And I was like, wait a minute. Isn't that still on? Like, I encounter that argumentation all the time when it comes to sustainability. So when I was the UN Youth Delegate, I had to, like, negotiate with um, decision makers at international and national level all the time that they, for example, shouldn't, shouldn't replace technology A with technology B. So, for example, replacing fossil fuel cars with electric cars is not sustainable and we need to rethink the whole thing like we need to have car-free cities for example so i would say we still have that problem of that dominant dogma of um, promise of progress through technology in my eyes and the example you gave of you know fixing the car problem with car-free people-centric cities at least city centers it's kind of instead of replacing technology a with technology b It's kind of like replacing technology A with behavior B. This is also an option that we can discuss. It doesn't have to be just technology fixes all the time. You can also say that we just um, replace fossil fuels with renewables and fine. But I would argue that we also need to ask ourselves fundamental questions here as well, such as how much energy do we need and who, whom does this energy belong to, who can produce the energy? I mean, very general, what kind of good life do we want to have or what is that good life? Yeah, and actually that's what uh, my next guest talks about. Uh, she is Lisa Benda. She's a pastor in training in the Protestant church and she wrote her master's thesis, like Johann, uh, on this same conflict and and came to very similar conclusions. So let's listen into that. 
in the churches, there were a big discuss discussion about energy and uh, nuclear power plants in the 1970s and about uh, ecological uh, questions. And I found, yeah, the opponents published more or there they they went more to the public to uh, express their opinion. Was this because they were more powerful? No, perhaps just the opposite, because they were less powerful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they uh, had the need uh, to to express their opinion, to, uh, to to state their their point. The proponents of nuclear were the ones who had the industry behind them. Yeah. 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 Okay. So they had they had more power. Mm -hmm. The one who wanted to to build the the, the plants um, had much power in the seventies. Right. There was no need for them to uh, express their opinion in in newspapers. They thought there wasn't a reason. Yeah. Yeah, they thought. Yeah, they, they they made the mistake of forgetting that. I mean, I guess in the seventies, it's it wasn't quite as it is today with infrastructure projects. Nowadays, everyone understands that whenever you decide to build something, you need public engagement, and yes, and right. in a way, this is kind of one of the big lessons we learned out of this. Yes. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. At the beginning, uh, for the government, there was uh, almost no reason to explain why they wanted to build this uh, power plant. Mm -hmm. They just said, oh, we want to build it and it's good for you and it's good for us mm. <laughs> and for the whole country. So uh, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. were the opponents of, of nuclear power saying back then? Like specifically, why were they opponents? So in real or in general? Well, both, uh, but but specifically, was there anything that surprised you? I mean, today, uh, I think everyone would automatically say radioactivity. Uh, is yeah. is there a difference back then? Uh, yes, uh, radioactivity was a, a topic for uh, the opponent opponents. That's right. What surprised me most is the fact that uh, some theologians questioned the nuclear power in general. So it really in general, they said nuclear power plants give the human too much energy. Mm -hmm. If people have that much energy as the nuclear power plants provide, mm -hmm. so they will increase changing the planet, they will uh, increase exploiting the planet. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to, to stop this technology. One theologian said, if we could offer as much energy by solar energy, as we uh, plan to do with nuclear power plant, we would have to oppose to solar energy. Okay. So, <laughs> Did you also find examples of locals opposing plans to industrialize the area? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that was a big topic for the bishop and the synod. The Rhine was very polluted in the 1970s, and the, the bishop of the Protestant church in Baden said, that has to be stopped. And if we uh, build a nuclear power plant in Wiel, the pollution of the Rhine will increase and will not be stopped. So we have to stop the nuclear power plant to stop the pollution of the Rhine. They feared it would come from the industry that would then be attracted to go, you know, follow all of this electricity, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really often forgotten uh, because everyone talks about, you know, yeah. it was a protest against nuclear power. But a lot of the people were saying, yeah. we're, you know, a, a, a farmers and we have orchards and, and vineyards. Why are you giving us all this electricity? And then the government came in and said, well, don't worry, we're going to bring in industry. And then they were like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, in real, many protesters tried to protect their homeland, in mm -hmm. German Heimat, against massive industrialization and 
coming with that, changing of the social life, of the villages, of the way of living. And they said, we don't want to have these changes. We want to protect our Heimat against these uh, yeah, these plans. Are there any lessons that we can learn today about sort of the whole energy transition? Because it's all of this is still happening. We have to communicate between the government or the uh, industries and the people who are who, who live in uh, in the areas that are to be industrialized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have to discuss not only the location, but uh, also the vision of society mm -hmm. uh, in which we want to to live. Mm -hmm. So the question is: Do we want to live in a society with almost endless uh, energy sources? Or do we want to live in a society with less energy, but with more social participation, with more social life, with uh, protecting our Heimat? <laughs> yeah, but we have also to be honest about the, the cost. I think it's it's not possible to, to keep this uh, standard of living as we have in Europe at the moment. I struggle with the word standard of living there because yeah. I, I actually hate flying. And yes. I would very much, I would very much prefer to spend those hours uh, sitting in the sunshine playing guitar. Yeah. So, which is not bad for the climate, you see. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we need to explain things that way. Yeah. 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 That's true. <laughs> Yeah, so Rebecca. Yes, please. <laughs> there's one thing that I really like to say, and I think I think Lisa points that out here. Just a brief point. You know, getting permission from the public to build infrastructure, that is one way that Germany's energy transition has democratized Germany and, and German the German energy sector. It's made German democracy more open and less authoritarian, um, and it's an aspect that's not talked about enough. I especially liked her question that she poses, which is, what's the vision of society? But at the same time, I feel like, well, we need to bring back also urgency and bring back reality because climate change is already limiting our options and will do that even more in the future. She's talking about the people who want to protect their homeland. Craig, do you think those people are more likely to support renewables? Um, not necessarily. Let me put it this way. I think the mistake that we make is, is thinking of renewables as the good guy. Renewables can be perceived as bad guys too. Uh, not necessarily in terms of pollution, but just in terms of like the impact on a local community. And so we should not uh, just assume people who are worried about their local communities, about their homelands, are going to like a wind or solar project or whatever just because we think it's green or good for the environment. Um, but Rebecca, I mean, I, you know, made all of these interviews. I'd be interested in knowing at the end of our first episode here, what are your main takeaways? Sure, I've, I've learned a lot. And I think my main takeaway is sometimes you don't need a business case to do the right thing. You just know that we cannot continue business as usual and we have to be brave enough for alternatives, for new concepts. And actually that sounds so familiar because it's applicable for today. It's true for today's situation more than ever. 
I think this is the spirit that we need to get out there. I was very surprised that radioactivity was not the primary argument against nuclear. And <laughs> another takeaway is that next time I want to get to know a person, so maybe on a date or something, I will ask that person about their posters on the wall. Ah, okay. <laughs> You've been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local Community Renewables Project LECO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014-2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, German website Telopolis and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! <laughs> and our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan, Tricolor! So, Craig, do you have another joke for us this week? Uh, yeah, I actually have two jokes for you, each of them worse than the other. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so uh, the reason why I picked two jokes, they're pretty short, but they uh, we've been talking a lot in this podcast about like generational differences, mm -hmm. and I found two jokes that are really outdated. So one of them, do you know what a telegraph is? Telegraph sounds like ancient. <laughs> have, have, have you ever sent a telegraph? No. <laughs> I haven't either, but so we talked about Professor Yaras's uh, website. So he's going to be in a later episode. Don't worry, he's coming. And he has these jokes on his website. So this joke is a student sends a telegraph back home. Okay, so today you would send a text message or something. Yeah. And the student sends a telegraph and asks his dad, hey, where's the money? And dad answers, it's here. Okay, not funny. I'm not funny. Okay, so the next one's even worse. Um, the next one, and here's a joke that you won't even get. I have to explain this. So in Germany, all of the like grocery stores and everything, they used to close at 6.30 p.m. And so the joke, when I got to Germany, they used to tell this joke. Why do students get up at 6 o'clock? To to get go to the supermarket yeah to, so that because the stores close at 6 30 yeah. yeah so there we go that's part of the museum i would say yeah okay <laughs> M museum jokes here we go <laughs> goodbye everybody All see right, you see next, next week, week. Bye, -bye. bye